picks that up again. <laughs> All right, so John 12. <laughs> I, uh, you guys are really patient with me, and I appreciate that. Uh, John 12. I want to read through the chapter as we do, and then we'll pray and we'll jump in. Um, this is the moment. Remember, we've been talking as we've read through this um, John's Gospel. There are numerous occasions where Jesus says, or where John even comments, and he says, uh, because his hour had not yet come, right? Because the time was not ready yet. That sort of idea. There's several places where that happens. Well, in this chapter, that changes. Jesus said, says, now, now is the time. My hours come, right? And uh, so it begins this final week. I don't know why we say final week. It's only the week before the crucifixion. It's not his final week, right? He dies, and then he comes back three days later, and then he hangs out, right? Until uh, uh, for 40 days or so. Uh, not exactly 40 days, but until um, 10 days before Pentecost, right? So Pentecost was 50 days after Passover, so it's not entirely 40, 40 days, but... Anyways, um, let's read. John 12, verse 1. <clears throat> um, then, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made, a, made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table. With him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also. <laughs> Once wasn't enough, I guess. <laughs> because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, or Hoshiana, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord the king of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip 
who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice didn't come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. The people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Messiah, the Christ, remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed. And was hidden from them. But, but although he had done so many signs before them, they didn't believe in him. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. Because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they didn't confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I don't judge him. For I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and doesn't receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I haven't spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me, he gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the father has told me, so I speak. All right. All right, let's pray and then we'll jump into back into verse 1 here of chapter 12, John 12. Father, it certainly would be no good for us to just 
um, be here reading a book. And there are lots of people who uh, are doing that, um, plenty. There are lots of things for us to read. Um, but the value uh, and, and really what's vital, what, what is so necessary for us is that you are present with us and that you are, are using uh, your word, what you have spoken to men and through them since um, of course you are able to make life through your word you are using uh, your word um, to write your will on our hearts and in our minds and and that's what I want because um, because my life is so uh, little Lord our lives are so small when we consider the breadth of human existence and even more the breadth of, of all the cosmos the entire created order we are such a small part and yet in the story that you are writing Somehow you have given us great significance by creating us in your image. And though we have marred that image in sin from the very first, you have continued to work with us, through us, and in us, Lord, in ways that we could not do for ourselves. And you've done it um, just because you wanted to. Father, I pray that you would continue to speak to us through your word and that you would continue to write your will in our hearts and in our minds and teach us to love one another. Please, Lord, teach us to love one another and to do good and to lay our lives down just as Jesus showed us. Please, Father, would you work through us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, you guys. Back in verse 1. Uh, we get a timeline here of what's happening. Um, remember the last little section that we uh, read about where there was a more of a timeline was a couple of chapters ago where the Bible tells us that Jesus was at the Feast of Dedication. A Feast of Dedication is, um, is Hanukkah. Um, so that was a winter festival. Now we're coming into the spring and, and we're coming up to Passover now. Uh, which happens on the 14th of Nisan. Um, John picks up the dating for these events uh, by beginning here in verse 1. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. See chapter 11. <laughs> right? This is all in context. It's all in flowing, right? Last week we looked at John chapter 11, and that was the uh, situation there with Jesus uh, making his way uh, down there um, to um, Bethany where Lazarus was, who was dead, and, and raising Lazarus, resuscitating him, bringing him back from the dead. Um, and as we mentioned last week, demonstrating that the dead uh, aren't actually dead, right? That uh, otherwise, how could he have? How could Lazarus have come back? How could he have put him back in his body? He was dead four days. Um, if the dead are in fact dead and no longer existing, there would be no way for Lazarus to come back into his body. But he did, <laughs> right? Um, because Lazarus was not dead. 
Um, and Jesus made that very clear through Lazarus' resurrection, um, um, an important point. And then moving us toward the idea of resurrection in the future as well. Um, but not only that, the reality that those who have died in the Lord uh, certainly aren't dead. Um, that is, they, they have not ceased to exist. Now, verse 2 says there, They made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, and you could certainly look into that more if you're so inclined. The main point of the story here is only to say that this is expensive oil, very expensive and there has been much speculation as to what Mary was doing with this oil. I don't really understand why. I think that Jesus answers why. Um, and, and maybe she was, maybe she knew it. Maybe she didn't know. Um, but um, the way Jesus says it seems to suggest that maybe, maybe she did know. Um, but people have speculated as to why she would have had this expensive oil um, that was used. This oil was worth. Uh, not entirely a whole year's wages if we take the denarius one denarius a day which is an example that jesus uses in one of in um, one of his parables if we take that as a common daily wage that people were okay working for um then uh then this the value of this would have been almost a whole year's uh, working wages um it's a lot right i mean Obviously, the value of, of labor is different <laughs> at different times. But um, um, even say now, you know, say an average yearly income of forty grand, maybe um, thirty thousand dollar perfume bottle of perfume. Just imagine the value of this perfume. If I had an extra, let's even lower it a little. If I had an extra twenty-five grand just sitting in a perfume bottle, <laughs> what would you do with it? Right, that's the value of what we're talking about here. Right. <clears throat> so, um, the text continues. Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. She anointed the feet of Jesus um, with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. One of his disciples, though, verse 4 says, One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? <laughs> this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And had the money box, and he used uh, he used to take what was put in. So, this might, by the way, lend lend us some understanding into what was going on in in Judas' mind with his betrayal of Jesus for thirty uh, shekels of silver. Um, so Judas was a thief, John says, and he was taking money that was put into the into the money box. He was responsible for it. Um, he had the money box, it says. It was his responsibility. He was the treasurer of the disciples, and he um, he was stealing from it. So if he is uh, concerned about what's about to happen and about the direction that Jesus is headed and about his source of income, 
<laughs> then uh, maybe that lends some insight into his some of the motivation behind what he is doing. He's like, well, I'm going to get one last little bit of money out of this situation. I'll, I'll betray him and get a little bit more funds, um, you know, to make it a little bit longer. So um, regardless, so uh, verse 4 tells us um, that this was Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him and and uh, he asked this question in verse 5 as we read, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? I mentioned you 300 denarii is about a year's wages. Let's say that a little less than that. So let's say that um, 25, let's say it's worth about $25,000 now. If I had $25,000 sitting in a pound of very costly, very expensive oil just hanging, um, what would be my choice to do with that? What would I do with that money? Um, <laughs> Judas uh says why was this fragrant oil not sold and the money given to the poor <laughs> this is such a fascinating thing to me especially with having the insight of the fact that he was taking money from the money box he didn't really care for the poor um a couple of very simple lessons I think that we can draw from what's being said here is that um, one of the very plain ones I, I think is that issue that I was talking about earlier about judging one another, right? Um, Judas' attitude here, and, and it, it can sound really pious, right? It can sound really, really high and mighty. Oh, well, you should, she should have sold that and given the money to the poor, you know? That would have been the right thing to do with it. It sounds very pious until we understand the actual motives behind him saying that. Um, now, uh, there's also things happening like this now. Lots of people say, well, the church should do this or the church should do that. Um, lots of people outside of the church say that about Christians. Christians should act this way or Christians should do this if they really were, if they really were following the teachings of Jesus or some other thing. And the truth is that a lot of times behind those statements are false motives. A lot of times there's the reality that many of the people saying those things aren't themselves doing anything. They're not actually help. They're not really doing that themselves. They're not taking up their own money and giving to help other people. But they say, well, you should be doing that, you know. It's that Pharisaism, uh, and it's not only present in the church, it's present in humanity, right? Um, um, sometimes when people, um, you know, aggressively want to uh, um, attack somebody who, who uh, is saying that I'm, I'm pro-life and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to support um, abortion, um, some people might say, well, how many children have you adopted or something like that? You know, it's like, well, it's it's a, a moot point. It's irrelevant <laughs> to, because it has no bearing on the morality of executing inf infants in the womb. It's, it's irrelevant. Has no, no, it's, it's a straw man argument. I don't have to adopt anyone to say life is valuable. <laughs> right? Um, now, that's not to say that I shouldn't be involved in the other things. Right? Right? Because I can also do that. Right? Um, but as far as, as logic and a logical argument goes, it's an irrelevant one. Uh, and then coming back to that, um, and it's such a weird, that one, that situation such a weird thing to say people might suffer or people's lives might be bad, so we should allow them to be 
killed while they're in the womb because they might suffer. It's such such a weird way to approach a subject. Instead of saying, what can I do to help people? We're just saying, let's just kill them so they don't suffer. They don't potentially suffer. Let's just kill them uh, so that they don't, you know, so that people's lives are a little bit easier or whatever. Um, obviously, it's not always that simple. Um, but when we come down to the reality of the abundance of that issue, of just the sheer number of abortions, the reality is that, that most of the time it's not something happening because of medical emergencies or because of things like that. It's it's uh, other issues that are motivating factors. But um, the question then for all of us becomes, how can we love one another regardless? <laughs> How can we support people who find that to be the choice they, they think they need to make? How can we support and love and encourage and provide for, for people? Right. Um, not only uh, during the pregnancy and delivery, uh, but also afterward. Uh, how can we support our communities? Uh, how can we support um, single mothers and, and uh, other situations right, uh, like that? Uh, so that those thoughts become as unthinkable as they ought to be, frankly. Um, regardless, it's so easy, it's so quick for us to put down others and say, well, they're not doing the right thing. That's what Judas Iscariot does here. But his motive is so wrong. He's saying that she should have sold this and the money given to the poor <laughs> because he, the money wasn't actually going to all go to the poor, right? That's the thing. Like, like he, he had, he, he has... Uh, other motives in this because he kept the money box. So if the money went into the money box, Judas is like skimming off the top of it, right? <laughs> He's like, I can get a little bit of this, right? And if we're talking about 25K, right? We're talking about a lot of money. 300 denarii is a lot of money. Um. <laughs> This brings us back to that situation that I was talking about earlier about judging our our neighbors and about uh, about looking at other Christians and saying, well, you're not that conscience issue. You're not handling it the way I think you should handle it, and therefore you're doing it in a wrong way. Right? You're wrong, and I'm right. Um, and I want to reference for you again Romans um, ten, Romans twelve. Those are great um, sections there where those things are talked about. Um, where Paul teaches about that stuff. Um, what then should we do? Well, obviously, I think the simplest thing, the simplest answer to that is to say, how can we love our neighbor as ourselves? Right? Um, Jesus says something here that I don't really always, I don't really want to hear necessarily. M maybe people in the world don't want to hear as well. Other people in the world don't want to hear. I'm also in the world, in case you guys weren't sure. Uh, I'm just, I'm also here. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> verse seven. Jesus said, "Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial." I mentioned to you that some people have speculated as to why she would have something so valuable that costs so much money. Um, because we're talking about almost a whole year's wages, $25,000, $30,000 in today's value maybe, um, you know, is a just really rough estimate. Um, but it's a lot. It's worth a lot. Jesus said that she kept it for his burial. 
I don't know if this means, did she actually believe him when he kept telling them that he was going to be killed? Did she actually believe him and was actually making preparations for it? Jesus said that she kept it for the day of his burial. Obviously, this particular day is not the day of his burial. <laughs> but this becomes an opportunity for her to lavish this gift on him. When Jesus says, the next verse, verse 8, For the poor you have with you always. It's not. <laughs> Why would Jesus say that? Hasn't he heard of socialism? Um, as a, you know, social construct. There were lots of ways in Moses, in the law of Moses, where God had given very specific commands that um, required Israel to take care of the poor in the land. Things like um, leaving the corners of the field unharvested, uh, at the time of harvest, leaving those unharvested, allowing people to walk through and to collect, you know, to harvest them themselves if they needed to, if they were hungry or needed something else, you know. Um, there were numerous ways where God provided and, and commanded Israel to care for the poor among them. But when Jesus says, the poor you have with you always, I think he's just saying what the law says. In Deuteronomy 15, verse 11 um, the writings say, for the poor will never cease from the land. Therefore, I command you, saying, you shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor and your needy in your land. God just flat out says, there will always be the poor around you. So I'm commanding you to do good to them, to open your hand wide to the poor. <laughs> like that's it's part of God's command to love. Therefore, I command you, saying, you shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor and your needy in your land. That's Deuteronomy 15, verse 11. But the pertinent part of that text for what Jesus says is the beginning. For the poor will never cease from the land. Why did Jesus know? Why could Jesus say, the poor you will have with you always? Because Moses said, <laughs> the poor will never cease from the land. It's it's very simple. If the scriptures have said it, it is true. <laughs> I know that there's tons of people on the TikTok saying otherwise, <laughs> or on the whatever, on, you know, fill in the blank. <sighs> Man, there are a lot of people that are, you know, James gives a warning and says, do not many of you be teachers, knowing that teachers will receive stricter judgment. It's a pretty um, sobering warning and one that um, a lot of people aren't, maybe aren't aware of, but when we are becoming teachers on social media <laughs> or uh, of our friends and our neighbors, of our children, we ought to take it to heart that there's responsibility. We carry a weight with that. I will have to give an answer for it. That's the point, right? The poor you have with you always, you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Jesus is saying, yes, this money could have been, been done that way. Uh, been, this oil could have been sold, the money could have been given to the poor. 
but this becomes an opportunity. This is something that she was doing for Jesus, and it was precious to him because of the sacrifice that she was making for him. Is this to say that, or suggest that Jesus doesn't care for the poor? Because the truth is, that's how people might take it. And that's how people might say to you now, well, why did you waste money on that thing? You could, you could have bought something different, and you could have given the money to help other people. Okay, it's true. But like, I've, I've bought expensive things for my wife. I could have bought something different. But it, there are sometimes things that I wanted to do for, for her to demonstrate my love for her, my care for her. And sometimes those things cost money. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, the truth is, it can, it can always be said of all of us. So then do we take it to the, to the end of that thought, no one should have anything, <laughs> because we can, we can just give everything away? Oh, listen, Jesus did tell the rich young ruler, right, to sell all that he had and give the money to the poor. I don't think, I don't think Judas had no precedence for what he was saying, right? That's what Jesus' command was to the rich young ruler, right? And, and here's the other thing that comes back to that issue of, of us judging one another, of looking at our brothers and sisters who follow Jesus and saying, well, you're not following the way I think you should be doing it. Because the glory of the new covenant, according to Jeremiah 31, is that God will write his will in your mind, in your heart, what he wants for you to do. So to one, he might say, sell everything that you have and give the money to the poor. To another, he might say, I'm so glad that you wasted this gift on me. It was lavish and it was expensive. And there are poor people who could have used it. But this was something you did for me and that's fine. This is something I need to hear because I can be quick to judge mega churches <laughs> and what they're doing and the way they spend money. <laughs> and I need to be reminded that, that I shouldn't do that. For those who follow Jesus, God is able to make them stand. And Paul said in, in a Romans. So then, what I need to do is take heed to myself. And I need to say, Lord, what do you want me to do if I have this very costly oil of spikenard? <laughs> do you want me to sell it and give the money to the poor? Do you want me to do something else with it, Lord? And then I need to submit. I need to obey what I believe is right, what I believe he wants me to do. The poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always, Jesus said. He's about to leave <clears throat> and return to uh, his place at the right hand of the Father. And there's preparation now being made for that. Now a great many of the Jews, verse 9 continues in John 12, verse 9 says, A great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus. So now there's groups of people going out there to see not only Jesus, but now Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Not only are they going to try to execute Jesus, now they're like, we got to get rid of Lazarus, uh, because this is evidence of an incredible miracle that Jesus did. And so we don't want people to trust Jesus. 
And so we need to put Lazarus to death too, so that um, <laughs> so if somebody's like, "See, Lazarus is alive again," they'd be like, "Nope, he's not alive again," because <laughs> we we killed him. <laughs> uh, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Verse twelve says, "The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, and cried out, Hosanna or Hoshiana." Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Hosanna. Hosanna. It's, um, Psalm 118 is the quote here where they're quoting from. They took branches of palm trees and they said, Hosanna. Hosanna is one of the, as we've mentioned before, is one of those words we transliterate from um, Hebrew, and we bring it into the English language, into other languages as well. Hosanna, uh, amen, is another, and hallelujah is another. Amen means like so be it, or we agree with that, or yes, let it happen. Um, hallelujah means we all praise the Lord. That's what hallelujah means. And um, Hosanna or Hoshiana uh, means save now. It's like a, a cry, say, rescue me now, save now is what Hosanna means. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Now that's a pretty high praise they're lavishing on Jesus, calling him the King of Israel. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus had said that they wouldn't see his face. After Israel's rejection of him, they wouldn't see his face again until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, verse 14, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And this is from um, uh, from Isaiah 40 and uh, Zechariah, Zechariah 9, 9. specifically mentions the donkey. Um, This is one of those situations where Jesus very clearly, very directly fulfills uh, prophetic writings. Something that had been written um, years before about the coming of the Messiah. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's also interesting that Jesus' name is the Hebrew word for salvation because the text in Zechariah says he is just and having salvation. (laughs) And Jesus' name means salvation, Yeshua. Um, verse 16 is a parenthetical statement that John gives uh, about their understanding of what was happening at the time. Okay, So verse 16 says, His disciples didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. So while all of these things are happening, they're not fully aware of the significance of all that's happening. 
But later on, after Jesus is glorified, they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and their minds are able to remember and to understand like the prophetic writings and how they applied to Jesus in ways that they didn't fully understand when they were happening. And God is able to do the same thing for us. He's continuing to teach us the things about Jesus, um, the things that um, God has promised for him and about him and therefore for us as well. They remembered these things were written about him and they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people, verse 17, who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him uh, because they heard that he had done this sign. He had raised Lazarus from the dead. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that they are, that you are accomplishing nothing. nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now they're becoming increasingly frustrated because Jesus is now back in the area. Uh, lots of people are, are gathering around. Lots of people are going to Jesus because they had heard about what had happened with Lazarus. And now multitudes of people are there. Jesus comes into the city riding on a donkey, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah. And this is frustrating to them because they don't believe him. They're trying to find a way to execute him. They haven't been able to yet um, because they don't trust him. Now, verse 20 says, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Uh, Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Speaking of these Greek-speaking people. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Now um, he shares with them, but Jesus answered them, saying, verse 23, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. There it is. Throughout John's gospel, we've heard John say, uh, remind us that there are numerous instances where these phrases kept being used. Um, My hour is not yet. The time is not yet come. But now it is. Now it's time for him to be glorified. And doesn't that sound like great news? He's going to be glorified now. But he doesn't say this at the Mount of Transfiguration. He doesn't say this at his baptism. He says it right before he's, he's murdered. There's something important and precious and so valuable about the sacrifice, about the offering of Jesus, about Jesus giving himself up for us, about him being glorified through it, through laying down his life for us. The common, the common mentality of our day and, I, and probably of every other is... Um, look to yourself. Take care of yourself. Focus on yourself. Get all that you want for you. Make yourself happy. Live your life for you. But I'm really, really, really thankful that that wasn't the motivating factor for Jesus. He wasn't primarily concerned with preserving his own life. Because I needed him to die for my sins, or else they would not be forgiven. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no no remission of sin. And I would have no place in his kingdom 
had he not offered his life once for all sin. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, verse 24 says, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much fruit, much grain. Jesus, again, using a common understanding, when you plant a seed, if you don't plant the seed, you just have one seed, right? If you plant the seed, the seed grows into whatever plant it's supposed to grow into and produces many seeds from that one seed that you planted. Do you understand that? Right? Whether it's fruit, whether it's whatever, any other type of thing, it produces many seeds out of the one seed, out of the one, produces much fruit and then more seeds in that fruit as well. Um, or grains. If it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Uh, Obviously, to be as plain as we can be, we must say that Jesus is never teaching us that if we just hate what happens to us, then we'll have eternal life. <laughs> well, my life's been terrible, so I'm I'm good to go, <laughs> right? He's not talking about um, just looking at the thing, uh, situations of life and judging them as being bad or good and saying, well, I don't like my life, therefore I have eternal life. That has nothing to do with what he's teaching here, nor in any other place in the writings. Um. He's also not saying that if you are satisfied with your life, if you love the life that God has given you, that you will not be in his kingdom. That is not what he's saying. Um, He is reminding us of this this, um, irony of his kingdom of pursuing uh, what is best for ourselves over what is best for others. He demonstrates this by himself offering up his life for others, laying his life down for the benefit of others, sacrificing, giving up what he could have for himself, giving it up for the sake of other people. It's this um, mentality that Jesus calls us to embrace where we say, um, I'm not going to live simply to just get more for myself. I'm not going to live with myself as the central theme and motivation, with serving myself and getting more for myself. That is not the driving factor, the motivating factor of my life, but it is the motivating factor that's natural to us. And it is the motivating factor that is natural to the whole world system, to everyone, is to say, I'm doing this because I want to and I think it's good for me. And something that's not good for me or that I don't think is good for me, I'm going to cut that out of my life or I'm going to get rid of it or I'm going to be done with it. And it's that mentality, that psychology that's been preached to us that we embrace naturally, self over everything else, that's caused marriages to fall apart. It's caused children to resent and to hate their parents and parents to do the same for their children. You see these parents that have recently, I've read a couple of stories about parents that have like have killed their children. Like, what is, what, what? And it's not a it's not a new thing, right? We've been doing it for for thousands of years since the beginning, you know. <laughs> Why? Why? Because self. Because I am more valuable than whatever it is that's afflicting me. 
And all I need to do is get rid of that thing that I don't like, that displeasure. Whatever it is that, that, that isn't bringing me pleasure or happiness, just get it out of my life. That's all I'm going to do. That's the mentality. That's the, the, the common MO, the common psychology that dominates so much of the world. But Jesus comes and shows us a different thing. Where we lay our lives down for others. Where instead of the the first thought that we have when it comes to another person being, how is this good for me? What am I getting out of this? Where we can have an entirely different shift. Where we're not really concerned about what we get out of our relationships. But instead what we're putting into them. How we're serving, how we're helping, how the question then becomes, am I a benefit to this person? Is what I'm saying and doing, how I'm using my body and my life helpful to that person? See, because when it comes to murder, it kind of solves the issue, right? I'm not going to murder you if my primary concern is, am I, am I doing something that's helpful for you? <laughs> well, I'm not going to murder you, right? It solves that issue. Right? When it comes to abuse, when it comes to sexual abuse, when it comes to secret sin, if my primary motivating factor is love for you, is what I'm doing beneficial for you? Is it good for you? It solves so many of the issues. And it's when when that isn't my motivating factor, when my driving factor is, I'm going to do what is good for me, (laughs) no matter what it costs you. No matter how it affects you. Uh, That's when we, um, (laughs) well... We've spoiled the world, and we've spoiled it because we've all lived like that. We've ruined it from the very beginning. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The fear of death is such a central, motivating, driving force in human nature And Jesus is saying, I don't want you to be afraid of that. The longer I live, the more aware I become that many of the choices I make are motivated by being afraid to die. That's why I don't sacrifice some things. But if the dead aren't really dead, just because their bodies are, if there's something more, and this is really where faith comes into the the entire picture, where I've got to decide who I'm going to trust, who am I going to believe.
because Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Because when you remove the motivating fear of death, when we move that to the side, even in whatever small way we can, <laughs> because it is a central, natural driving force, in that place that we can learn to suffer well. That we can continue to serve and love people even when they aren't giving us what we wanted out of that relationship. I'm pretty sure I don't give Jesus what he would love to have out of my relationship. <laughs> but all the same, I'm also confident because of his sacrifice for us that um, he loves He loves us the same. Not, not more because I did more this week than last week. He can't love you more than he does. He loves you in, in the totality of his love, in all that he can love. He loves you, and he demonstrated that by saying, I'm going to lay my life down for you. I'm going to give it up for you, that your sin would be removed from you, that you would have eternal life in a world where everyone is afraid of dying. This is what... Like in our... The way we view medicine is such a strange thing these days. Because doctors are not gods, but we think they are. We think they know everything, and we think they can handle everything, and they can do everything, but they can't. <clears throat> and we say, some, some say, you know, Healthcare is a is a human right. <clears throat> we so quickly encroach on the rights of one another. <laughs> I freely confess that death, death is a scary, scary thing. Because it seems so final. I haven't been through that myself. Right? I haven't been through that yet. Obviously, right? Here I am. There is so much that's motivated by the fear of death. But then I look at people as examples. I, I'm encouraged by uh, examples of people who I think embraced the way of Jesus. Um, 
in laying their lives down. I think of the um, uh, one example is the uh, missionaries uh, down in Ecuador in the 50s um, who themselves were in their late late 20s, maybe early 30s. I know Jim Elliott was only 28 and he was killed. In um, out, it was a uh, uh, in um, Shell Station, I think, outside of uh, Quito, in Ecuador. They just wanted to tell. They wanted to. T- they like patterned their whole lives for this. They knew there was this unreached people group and they wanted them to know the good news of Jesus. And it's fascinating because many years later now we learned that they had like wise people in their own community who like prophets basically who had said that one day somebody was going to come and, and show them God's carvings and God's writings, you know. But these tribes lived they were warring tribes and they just families basically and they just killed one another year after year after year. They retaliated over and over and over again. And when those five men finally made contact with them, they killed them, all five of them, on the beach in um, the on the river there in um, in Ecuador. It was Jim Elliot who, even in his twenties, said things like, "He is no fool who gives what he can't keep to gain what he can't lose." Like they just believed that Jesus and the promises that he gave were more valuable than their own lives. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And I'm saying, as I'm talking about these things, what I'm really saying is, uh, Lord, would you help me not to be afraid to die so that I can lay my life down for my family, for, for the fellowship of believers so that I can sacrifice and give up the things that I want for myself. If anyone serves me, verse 26 says, let him follow me and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Do you see that? If anyone serves me, let him follow me. This is what it means to be a Christian. A person who's a Christian is a person who follows Jesus. It really is that simple. And it's it's one thing. It's very culturally acceptable to say, well, I'm a Christian, at least relatively these days. It's becoming less acceptable. And, and I'm fine with that. Um, it's just thinning out the crowd. People are like, the church is declining. Not, I don't think that's true. I think the church is probably still continuing to grow as it, as it has in its normal way, uh, sort of under the surface of things. Uh, but the reality is the, the outward expression of saying, I'm a Christian, is becoming less and less because that's becoming culturally unacceptable uh, because of things uh, that are written uh, in, in the scriptures, right? So it's becoming less culturally acceptable. So less people are becoming cultural Christians. I think there's a lot of reality to that, certainly. A lot less people maybe are saying they're Christians, uh, but um, there are uh, an abundance of people who are still passionate, passionately pursuing the way of Jesus. Who have said, uh, he has promised eternal life and, and there is no life anywhere else, so I'm going to follow him. 
to follow Jesus is to be his servant, as he says here, if anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone says that they're following Jesus and they're not interested in serving him and obeying what he commands, then rest assured they aren't actually following him, right? And I only say that to remind you to examine your own heart, right? I'm not asking you to judge anyone else. I'm asking you to examine your own heart. If I'm saying I'm a Christian, I'm, I'm following Jesus, but I'm not actually listening to the words of Jesus and, and doing what he's commanding and, and pursuing him and wanting to do what he's commanding, then something needs to change in order for me to uh, become a person who wants to obey him, who wants to serve and follow him. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor that's a great promise that we might cling to. Verse 27, now my soul is troubled. And, and what, shall I, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. What would I say in, in the time of my death? When I'm about to die, what would I say? When something's about to kill me. Now this, Jesus knew that this was the purpose for which he came, was to lay his life down as a sacrifice for sins. And he's so aware of that. And he's embracing that reality here. Father, save me. Should I say that? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And of course, that becomes, that, that becomes his prayer, right? Lord, if there's any other way, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Because there's, there's real heaviness to letting go of our lives. This is not an easy thing that I'm sharing with you. It's not something I'm saying is simple. And you just, oh, it's, oh, it's so easy. No, denying myself moment by moment, looking at my neighbors, sometimes that's my wife, my children, whoever I'm around, and saying, is what I'm doing right now beneficial for you? Is it good for you? Is it helpful for you? For this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. A voice came from heaven. I know sometimes people say, well, if God really wants us to believe him, he should just speak from heaven. Great news. He has. If you needed that in order to believe, he has. Do you believe now? <laughs> See, because that's not really what, what people need. <laughs> Verse 29 says, there, Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. <laughs> Others said an angel spoken to him. Well, which was it? Did an angel speak to him? Was it God? Was it the Father? An angel? Did it just thunder? I love that because it's so normal. That's like this is the response people look at the create right at all of the created order and they're like it all happened by chance. What? Come on. <laughs> For real? It's just an accident. <laughs> I, here's here's something I was thinking of recently. I was like I was thinking how many plastic trash cans exist in nature? How many? Right? Just naturally existing plastic trash cans. You know how many? None. They were created. They were right. We made them. We ordered the stuff. We designed them. Okay. They didn't exist by themselves in the created order. And yet, there are many people who say, "Oh, humans. Oh, yeah, they're just an accident. 
I mean, just, you know, molecules coming together over lots of time. Oh, really? Plastic trash cans didn't happen over time, right? But humans did? Excuse me? To say that we are, are like, like, do you understand the complexity of, an, of a human being compared to a plastic trash can? And that didn't happen. Anyways, just that stuff frustrates me because it just seems so incredibly nonsensical. <clears throat> Anyways, the responses are always going to be like this to the supernatural. Some said it thundered. Others said an angel spoke to him. It was the voice of God. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Jesus answered, verse 30, Jesus answered and said, this voice didn't come because of me, but for your sake. <laughs> Jesus didn't need to hear the voice, <laughs> but they did. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Guys, that is really good news. And I know it doesn't look like it, but there's a fulfillment of this reality. The offering of Jesus for sin is, is the, the death blow to death. Because sin is, death is the wages of, of sin. So when Jesus dealt with our sin, he took, he took death out of the picture for us, for everyone who trusts him. And this ruler of this world, a phrase used numerous times to refer to the devil, to Satan himself. Why is the world such a mess? <laughs> well, the ruler of this world, <laughs> the ruler of this world will be cast out. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. There's a finality in the offering of Jesus, a death blow to the devil himself. Jesus has, in fact, overcome, overcome the great enemy of our souls and overcome death itself, the, the last enemy. Now, the author to the Hebrews reminds us that we do not yet see all things put under his feet. <laughs> but he is sitting at the right hand of the Father until the, the fulfillment, until the fullness of, of all that God has intended happens. And then we will, in fact, see all things put under his feet. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This is not talking about, as we mentioned previously, is not talking about singing praises, singing songs. We're lifting you higher, Jesus, in our songs, right? No, he was already lifted up. That's the point. How was he lifted up? On wooden posts. Because the cross pulls you up off the ground, and you hang there until you suffocate. Death by crucifixion is a long suffocation over. Sometimes it took a week for people to suffocate and die. It depends on their bodies, on the strength of their bodies and other things. Because Jesus uh, died on, uh, he was crucified on uh, a holy day, if you would, on Passover, they wanted to take 
uh, and, and they said this, they wanted to break the legs of the other people crucified with Jesus and Jesus' legs if he wasn't dead uh, in order to have them suffocate sooner. Because the way that you suffocate on the cross is by letting your body hang limp and it puts all the pressure down so that you can't fill your lungs with air anymore. So you, you um, asphyxiate and die from suffocation. But if your legs are strong enough, you push up with them to fill your lungs and then you can relax for a second. So when they wanted to break their legs, it was so they could no longer push up, so they would die faster. Um, history, um, there are records of people um, who were crucified and stayed on the cross for, for a week or longer at a time. So the fact that Jesus died after only a few hours is a reminder that no one took his life from him, right? That he gave it up. He laid his life down. He willingly gave up his life. as the sacrifice for our sins. Um, <clears throat> I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all to myself. He does indeed draw people from every tribe and tongue and nation to himself. I'm so glad for that. Jesus' church is not um, a place for one people group. <laughs> it's for the world. Every tribe and tongue and nation for him. This he said, verse 33, signifying by what death he would die. John makes it very clear. The reason why he talked about being lifted up from the earth is because he's talking about being crucified, about his body physically being lifted up off the earth, earth on the cross. Verse 34, the people answered him, we have heard from the law that Christ, the Christ remains, the Messiah remains forever. And how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? <laughs> they were confused now about Jesus saying that he was going to be lifted up and die because they had heard in the writings, in the law, that the Messiah was going to live forever. How could both of those things be true? Right? Enter resurrection. <laughs> he is going to die, and he's going to be raised from the dead to die never again. Alive forever. The people answered him and said that. Verse 35, then Jesus said to them, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Very direct statement about them trusting him in that moment. When they were alive with him, a little while longer, the light is with you, he said. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. These things Jesus spoke and departed and then was hidden from them. But although he had done so many signs, verse 37 says, before them, they didn't believe in him. It's like the sad follow-up statement. <laughs> Jesus is like, walk in the light. While you have the light, walk in the light. Because he who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. But although he had done so many signs before them, they didn't believe in him. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which, was, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is Isaiah 53. Therefore, they could not believe because Isaiah said again, is Isaiah 6, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. And if you want to learn more about God's sovereignty in those things, I would encourage you to read thoroughly Romans 9, 10, and 11. The reminder that God has mercy on whom he wants and whom he wants he hardens. 
And in this time, uh, Jesus presented himself as the Messiah to Israel, but their hearts were hardened, and they overall rejected him. Some believed, but not the majority of them. There was a remnant who believed, and they became the church, what we know as the church. But the majority of Israel rejected him, particularly those in leadership, uh, rejected their Messiah. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. So they were believing some of the rulers, were believing what he said, but they were afraid of the Pharisees. <laughs> they wouldn't say anything about it because they didn't want to be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. They were more afraid of men than they were of God, and they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. And these things, I want you to take them to heart when you hear things like that and to be able to say to yourself, um, am I, am I that kind of person? Do I love the praise of men more than the praise of God in my daily living and what I'm doing with my family or with the church or what I'm doing in our community and what I'm doing at work? Am I more concerned about the praise of men or the praise of God? And Jesus cried out and said, he who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. This is going to come up later when the disciples are talking to Jesus. And they're like, show us the Father and it will be enough. And Jesus is like, have I not been with you long enough? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. (laughs) Because he is the exact image of all that the Father is. So is Jesus. This is this part of this mystery of the Trinity. He who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. If anyone says, I want to know God, then they must look to Jesus. For he is the exact, the express image of the Father in a human body. If anyone hears my words and does not believe, I don't judge him. For I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. Something Jesus had said earlier in John chapter 3. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. And he says, um, I am the resurrection and the life. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except by me. The truth is, the word that Jesus spoke is going to judge people. When people say, I don't need Jesus. I, I, I don't need to trust him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak, and I know that his command is everlasting life. I just want you to sit in that idea just for a second. Jesus said that he spoke the word that his Father gave him, the command his Father gave him, and that command is eternal life. I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. I think a lot of us Bible teachers and preachers and pastors really need to be reminded of that. That is, the most important thing that I can say to you is what God has said. And I will be the best, most faithful and helpful pastor, teacher to you the more I limit what I say to what God has said. (laughs) Sometimes that's hard because I'm dumb. (laughs) 
<laughs> but I also want you to understand that as parents too. Because you are the one teaching your children whether or not to follow Jesus. And I want um, to make sure that you understand that about our relationship with our friends and our neighbors. The most helpful I can be to them in spiritual things in the way of Jesus is to just say to them what God has said. You don't have to be clever. You don't have to come up with, you know, alliterating, alliterated title sermon, sermon titles. <laughs> just live your life saying what, what, what he has said. In a normal, natural, everyday, not a weird, you don't have to be weird to tell people about Jesus. You don't have to be weird. <laughs> Just soak, soak yourself in the Word of God so that when you're replying to people about things, you just remind them of, of God's way. You encourage them. Encourage them with what God has said. In prayer, challenge them with what God has said. Uh, don't misunderstand people who don't trust him might think you're weird because of what you're saying, because the way of Jesus is in fact weird in that it is different than the way the world teaches us to live. Yes. Um, but there's also something incredibly attractive about, um, about people really caring for each other and about loving each other and reaching out and checking on each other. Um, I don't, I don't know that there's a whole lot of communities who really are people counseling each other. There just aren't, it's just not like a, a thing frequently. Like, oh, we, you know, you need to go hire somebody. You have to pay somebody to do anything for you. <laughs> what if it's not like that in the church? What if we didn't have to pay somebody to do something for us? What if we just helped each other? <laughs> That, wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> well, um, there's a lot of things that I need to uh, ask the Lord to work down deeply into me. This this primary place here of uh, in John chapter 12 of um, the reality that Jesus' time has now come, his death is imminent, and he's preparing them for that. <laughs> And he's really, really uh, sharing some some hard things. Um, um, God help us not to be motivated by the fear of man, <laughs> by the fear of death as well, but to lay our lives down, to sacrifice, and also to stop thinking that it's our responsibility to judge everybody else. And figure out whether or not everybody else is doing what's right. <laughs> um, in in conscience issues, particularly, um, I suppose at the end of the day, for me, I come to the like this place at the end of John twelve, and I say, Lord, help me to love my neighbor as myself. Help me to learn to lay my life down 
daily to lay it down again and to serve my wife and my children and my friends to think about them to be concerned with uh, to be thinking about how my life is is helpful to them or not and then if it's not to say how can I change that <laughs> what can I do to change that to be helpful to be beneficial for them um, Sometimes that requires a lot of talking, too, so we should talk to each other. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, Father, I, I just want to uh, ask for your help because I, I want um, to walk in your way in life and in light and love. And, and I, I want to learn... I want to be more free from, from the fear of death and less concerned with myself and more concerned with, with how I can be helping others. All of our time here is very short. <laughs> so uh, help us to think about others, I pray. Please do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. Uh, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious with you. And the Lord lift up his smile on you, his countenance on you, and give you peace, you guys. The Lord bless you and give you peace. Um,